0: Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? East of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he named the city of uh, he named he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. and She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived a hundred and thirty years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were eight hundred years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. When Seth had lived a hundred and five years, he fathered Enosh. Seth, Seth lived after he fathered Enosh eight hundred and seven years, Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and he had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. And he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived, after he fathered Lamech, 782 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Ham and Japheth. This is the reading of God's word to us. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you now and we hear from this word, we pray for your grace. Your grace to sustain us as we hear from this, from our homes. Whether we have sleepy heads or whether we've got children running around, we ask for your grace to be able to hear this word. It's an important word for all of us to hear. We also pray too, Father, for uh, your Spirit's help to understand this word, to engage with it, for your Spirit's help to help me to speak clearly from this passage as I ought. And we ask, Father, that you'll continue to bless us as we reflect on this word too afterwards. Father, do all of this for your glory and our joy in your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them bloom for me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world I said that poem out loud. I didn't want to embarrass you or embarrass myself with the uh, sound of my COVID voice In 1967 Louis Armstrong released this song It went straight to the top of the charts in the UK and would eventually be inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999 It's a very simple song and with a very simple message and at the time of its release it probably captured the mood of the time perfectly the thought was that the world was getting better and better medicines were improving lives technology was growing rapidly life was getting better and perhaps at some point the lyrics to armstrong's classic song would come true we would enter a global utopia but that idea has never really come about. In fact, the idea that the world keeps getting better and better has been around for centuries, but the utopian ideals have just never been reached. Why is that? Is it because we're just needing to unlock something so that everything will make, be made better? If we just had the right political policies? if we have the right money going to the right places, we are in the middle of now a federal election and that's what all the politicians are promising. If we do these right things, if we vote for the right people, then we will find life will be really good. Well, is it that simple? The answer is no. The basic truth is sin has a way of ruining everything. And not only to ruin it, but to make things worse than before. For all the hopes that our world will be getting get better and better, we, we find sin constantly dashing those hopes. It's the story that Genesis 4 and 5 knows all too well. This is a story of sin. This is a story of our world. After the disaster of Genesis 3 and the exile of Adam and Eve, we begin to wonder what life will be like. With the curses of God and and some of his promises ringing in our ears, we turn the page to find out what will happen. And it's actually a very promising start. First, we read in verse 1 that Adam and Eve conceive a child and his name is Cain, which sounds like the Hebrew word for gotten, uh, to receive, to get. So Eve says at the end of verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord." Now imagine for a moment that you don't know the details of this story and this is the first time that you're hearing it. Remember back in those curses to the serpent, God promised that one day one of Eve's offspring would eventually crush his head. Well this announcement of Cain's birth and his name has us maybe wondering, could this be the baby? the seed who crushes the serpent. We find out that in verse 2, Adam and Eve have another son, Abel. But this time notice that there's no announcement about his name. Abel's name is actually very similar to the Hebrew word Chavel, Abel, Havel. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the word Chavel. Is often translated as meaningless or vanity in the ESV. The word has a sense of trying to catch vapor. It's here one second and it's gone the next. What's going on here? At the end of verse 2 we find out their occupations though. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a farmer working the ground. Verse 3 opens up with the passing of time. In the course of time at some point Cain and Abel are Compelled in a way to worship God to bring God some offering as a sign of their worship Cain offers fruit from his farm and in a moment we'll see that God isn't actually pleased with that He he pays no regard to this offering. He doesn't look upon it with favor now God makes it known that Cain's offering was unacceptable, but why why is that? It's not because grain and fruit were not acceptable to God Right In Leviticus chapter 2 and Leviticus chapter 19, fruit and grain are suitable offerings to God. So the argument that some have made that Cain's offering isn't good because it wasn't a blood sacrifice doesn't actually ring true with what God himself says is he is pleased with. Remember, this story is a short story. It's very economical with its words. And so word usage and choices matter. So notice again clearly Abel's offering in verse 4 and the description of it. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. See, Abel didn't just bring any animal to God as an offering. He brought the firstborn of his flock, the fat portions. He brought the best. Cain brought the ordinary an offering to God was an act of worship Abel was and the quality of their offering reflected the conditions of their heart Abel was enthusiastic in his worship and Cain was disinterested the trouble then begins in verse 5 God has no regard for disinterested worship but Cain's response tells us everything about him your response to any situation often tells you a great deal about the state of your heart, right? Your first reaction, your first response gives, gives away what is actually there. And for Cain, this situation proves anger-inducing. His face fell. is a picture of someone who's gone sullen. He's moping around. He's in a mood and anyone who sees him knows he will probably snap at any time. And then notice, just like in Genesis 3, God confronts Cain with a series of questions. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 6 to 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Or just like in Genesis 3, God asks these questions, not because he doesn't know the answer to them, but he gives, them, he gives Cain an opportunity for open and honest reply but there's a warning to Cain as well. In verse seven, God presents to Cain two paths that he can take. The first path is to do well. Do well and you will be accepted. Change your attitude and your actions. Do well by worshiping God with a full and sincere heart that shows in a proper offering. That's the first path. In The second path, God warns that sin is crouching at the door like a hiding predator waiting to pounce. Sin desires to dominate and to control Cain, but he, he must rule over it. He must get control over this desire or something bad will happen. Does Cain do it? No, he gives in. Pause there for a moment and ask yourself, does that feel familiar? Uh, Given the choice before us, how often do we, Give into sin and let it control and dominate us. It may not lead to murder, I hope it hasn't, but often, how often do we feel the rage of anger rising up within us and then we give into it and explode? How often do we wrestle with lust and then give into that and see the images on the screen? What well, God says here is challenging. Giving into sin. Is essentially a failure to choose to worship our God. Cain demonstrates this starkly. Instead of repenting, he sinks deeper into sin. Luring his brother into the field, he rises up and he kills him. A murder made more heinous by the fact that his victim was his brother. We're only four or five verses into, no, we're only a few verses into the next chapter after Genesis 3. And we already have a murder but why did cain kill abel abel didn't wrong him cain didn't god didn't call on cain to forgive abel and reconcile with him cain was angry at god why did cain kill abel cain kills abel because he could not kill god and so he killed the one who pleased god The escalation of sin in these verses is astonishing, isn't it? It begins with disinterested worship. It it festers in anger. It turns into plotting and then rising up to murder his own brother. And just like in Genesis 3, you see how in verse 9 when God confronts Cain after this Again, he begins with questions, constant opportunities to confess and repent. The first question God asks Cain is, where is Abel your brother? Cain's reply in verse 9 is twofold. First, he lies. I do not know. He certainly knows the truth of that. And second, he throws the question back to God. Am I my brother's keeper? Keeper keep guard. That word that we heard given to Adam in the garden. Where Adam failed to keep and guard the garden, Cain has failed to guard his brother from his own anger. Another quick question in verse 10, what have you done, is followed by what God knows. The voice of Abel's blood is crying out to him from the ground. Whenever we hear that someone cries out to God or that God hears crying out, we know a grave injustice has happened. The sound of it resonates in the ears of God. And then God brings down his hammer of justice on Cain. His judgment is twofold. First, Cain will experience an an intensification of the curse of Adam. The ground will no longer yield its strength to him. Work will become intensely difficult for Cain. And second, Cain will be a continual fugitive, cursed to wander, never to settle, never to find rest. If the escalation of sin in these verses is astonishing, then Cain's complaint about his judgment is just as shocking. It's shocking because it's it, because we know the clear penalty in the Bible, the clear penalty in the Bible for taking someone's life is your own life in return. Life for life. God's judgment on Cain already has ge- a generous dose of mercy. Mercy is the... Withholding of punishment that is deserved. Cain deserved death. Anything less than that, and that was mercy. So when Cain complains that his punishment is greater than he can bear, it just seems a little bit over the top. He's also worried about the loss of God's presence when he says that he shall be hidden from his face. And he's also fearful for his life that if anyone should find him, that they would kill him. How would you respond to Cain in this moment? Would you scold him for being so daring? If you were God responding to Cain, what would you say? Would you rebuke him and remind him that he deserves so much more than what he's been given? I'll tell you how you wouldn't respond. You wouldn't respond like God does in this passage. Because we truly are not like God. God responds in an utterly amazing way amazing and unexpected he responds by giving Cain more grace if mercy is the withholding of punishment that is deserved grace is the free and is a free and undeserved gift what grace does he receive first in verse 15 God protects him with the promise of vengeance of his own if anyone kills Cain then God will return that on him sevenfold and I don't know why God protects Cain, but that is who God is. He is gracious and kind beyond our imaginations. And secondly, he places a mark on Cain so that it's clear that God has protected him. Now, what this mark is, we just don't know. But it's going to be clear for everyone. That is Cain. Do not touch him because God is, has protected him. God didn't need to do any of this. He, he, he could have told Cain to suck it up. But just like in Genesis 3, God continues to engage with his creatures, even in their rebellion. One final question before we move on from this story. How how would you respond in this situation? If you would put yourself down in Cain's shoes, right? You had a moment in God's shoes, now put yourself in Cain's shoes. You have just sinned so terribly, so grotesquely, so violently. God has so graciously and mercifully given you his judgment? What would you do? What would you do with the rest of your life? Now, What often gets overlooked in Cain's story is, I think, this final verse. But it's worth taking a moment to look at it, because it adds more weight to the terrible picture of sin that is being painted in this chapter. After the murder and judgment, in verse 16, Cain moves away. We read that he went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then in verse 17, we read that he has a child and he builds a city and names it in honour of that child. A few things here. First, he continues to move east, away from God. Is this east? I think it's east in relation to you. North, east, southwest, east. He continues to move east away from God. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the in, of the Garden of uh, Eden in an easterly direction. So for Cain to move further east indicates that he's actually moving further away from the presence of God. Second, he settles in the land of Nod and he builds a city. See, instead of being a wanderer for the rest of his life, he settles down. Now, this act of settling down and then building a city shows Cain as someone who doesn't care for the judgment of God, who does not submit to God even in his judgment. And it seems like Cain is taking advantage of the mercy and grace he has been given. Cain gets to enjoy his final years giving a big middle finger to God and his mercy. And isn't human sin just like that? Human sin started in the garden in in 16 verses. It has not only grown but spiraled down. See, Cain's story isn't just his own. It's also our story of our own sin as well, our own inability to control and rule over sin. And while we may cry out for mercy, we too can quickly take for granted and end up thumbing our noses at God. We can take for granted the grace we receive, the forgiveness we receive, and go right back on to rebelling. Perhaps even living in ways that reject the goodness of his mercy. That's our story, isn't it? And yet part of this story also already introduces to us, the again, the amazing mercy of God in judgment. God is so good to Cain, even if Cain can't recognize it. But the reader, we, we should. We should be marveling at his patience with sin. We should definitely marvel at how utterly undeserved mercy is shown to Cain. Well Cain's story continues with his family line and with one of his descendants we get an eerie look-alike. There's an eerie echo. Uh, Every now and then on Facebook uh, I get a suggested articles for me to read and I found this one the other day, 20 look-alike relatives that look like two peas in a pod. And here are some of my favorites. This young woman who says grandma's genes really hit copy and paste. She does look like her grandmother, doesn't she? This young man compared to his great-great-great-grandfather. And I quite like this one. This man and his direct, direct paternal grandfather born 506 years apart. Sometimes family members not only look alike, but they also behave in similar ways too. And that's what we see with one of Cain's descendants. So, in verse 18, we get a little genealogy. Cain has a son named Enoch. And just a quick note for any confusion, to avoid any confusion. uh, In these verses, you'll hear a couple of names that are actually repeated, uh, uh, that actually appear twice. And that's because they are different people with the same name. Okay. So Enoch, uh, Cain fathers Enoch, Enoch has a son called Erad and Erad goes on to have another son and so on and so on. Now you notice that this genealogy is actually very linear, one son per father. The same goes for the genealogy in chapter 5, one son per father. That, now there's an intentionality here uh, which isn't purely for the sake of historical detail. So you will notice that the narrator has placed Lamech as the seventh generation from Adam through the line of Cain. Remembering that seven is a number of wholeness and completion, the narrator is here making a theological point about Cain's line. These genealogies are not here for history's sake, they're here for a particular purpose, a particular theological purpose. And let's find out. We're going to have a look at this man named Lamech. And we find out about him in chapter 4, verse 19 to 24. And he is one nasty piece of work. First, we find out that he is a polygamist. He has two wives. One named Ada, another named Zillah. Not good. Second, we learn that he's a violent man. In verses 23 to 24, he makes a startling boast to his wives. And he sings this boast. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. I hope you can see that Lamech's violent boasting goes far beyond an eye for an eye. This is a man who exacts disproportionate justice, and in verse 24, he claims a greater vengeance than that of Cain, 10 times or 11 times, depending on your translation, a greater vengeance. Now, what is the narrator saying here? The narrator is saying that this man is the seventh generation from Adam, and if he is a reflection of the human race, in its wholeness and completion, then big trouble is ahead. Humanity is not getting better with time. The world is not getting better with time. In fact, it is getting worse But then notice also the little notes of grace that kind of punctuate themselves all through this little moments of good things happening in verses 22 to 23 the children of Lamech create agriculture farming and arts culture and metal tools and objects Lamech's children are actually responsible for culture and technology. Now there's some grace happening here. Advancement of human culture and, and civilization as well. But remember, this is actually all within the context of human sin and depravity. See, technology and culture, they can be really great. But they are not neutral. They are from the line of Cain. Which brings us to the line of Seth. And more grace of God through this uh, dark chapter. Adam and Eve bear another child and again we should now return to the announcement of the child. God is connected to this child. So you see it there in verse 25. Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a, a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. See, Seth has a son named Enosh, and then we're told that at this time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. There's a movement happening in the world at this time to call out to God for help. But what do we make of this? How will God answer? In the middle of this downward spiral of human sin we see violence and brutality yet we also do still see god involved bringing new children into the world and people calling on him but where is this all going to go so so far things don't look too great as we flip over to chapter 5 and we're going to walk through this quickly we'll see that the bad news just keeps on coming chapter 5 is another genealogy Uh, Not usually the most stimulating thing to read in the Bible. And I'm willing to bet that none of these verses have ever appeared on the inspirational Instagram Bible. See, as you read through it, you'll notice a, a lyrical pattern through this chapter. A man has a son, he lives X many years, and then that man dies. That son goes on to have another son, live X many years, and then he dies as well. And you'll notice that constant refrain in each little section. And he died. And he died. And he died. As sin progresses through the world, this one curse keeps getting passed down from generation to generation. The shadow of death looms large and looms over every generation. It is inescapable. Inescapable for all except one man, Enoch. We meet him in chapter 5, verse 21 to 24. Have a look at 21 again with me. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So we learn something interesting here. There's something very, very different about Enoch. We learn that he walked with God, just like God did with Adam in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden. Enoch has somehow managed to forge a close and personal and intimate relationship with God. And as a reward for this, he does not taste death. He was and was not. He just ceases to exist, not in death and burial, but God took him. Now, what's going on here? This, what's going on here is, is it's not just some interesting trivia for you to know for Bible night, right? Bible trivia night. There's something else going on here, too, and there's an interesting structural detail that the narrator wants us to see. Do you remember how Lamech, remember Lamech, that violent man that we just met? Remember that he was the seventh generation from Adam through the line of Cain? Well, Enoch is also the seventh generation from Adam, but through the line of Seth. From Cain's lineage, we have violence, polygamy and brutality. But from Seth's lineage, we have walking with God and eternal life. The use of the seventh generation tie-in here is purposeful. In the fullness of time, there are two lines for humanity, two paths to take, two ways to live. Which one will humanity take? In Genesis four to five, uh, Genesis four to five might be filled with sin and murder, death and decay, but it's also it, it also ends on a note of hope. One one final child is born in this genealogy from Enoch through Seth's line. Another Lamech, not the violent one, a different one. He's got a son. Now Lamech has a son, and he names him Noah. Noah is the tenth generation through from Adam. Uh, The lyrical pattern of chapter 5 is again broken, and we get given the meaning of Noah's name and the hopes that rest on his shoulders. Have a look again at verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. These are big hopes. Essentially Noah's father hopes that his son will reverse the Adamic c- curses Maybe just maybe this child will be the seed crusher the seed the, the crush the one to crush the serpent's head Hmm we'll Find out next week. I guess In this downward spiral of sin though in the face of ongoing death through each generation There is this hope hope that right in the right lineage something will change as we come now to the end of genesis four to five as we finish walking through it let me ask you what has this been like for you right for those of you who have read this who are familiar with it what is it like to walk through it again for those of you who haven't read through this who are not familiar with it what was it like for you you know, this past week, I've been struggling with COVID symptoms. I'm kind of on the tail end of it, I think. And thankfully, I haven't lost my sense of taste. So I'm really thankful for that. And Steph, my beautiful wife, has been looking after me really, really, really well. But I remember when I was younger, when I whenever I would get sick, uh, and like really, really sick, my mother would often make for me plain congee to eat. Congee is just rice. It's like rice porridge, it's just, and she would just make this congee um, And just make it super plain And because I was sick, she didn't add anything very nice to it So I just had plain congee, it's just plain rice porridge And about halfway through a bowl of this, oh man, I yearned for something to break up the blandness Now Genesis 4-5, to I wonder for you if it was a bit like that, not Not that it was bland in flavour But it was bitter, wasn't it? There was a lot of bitterness there. There's sadness. There's unpleasantness through every single verse. Now there are some moments of relief in the form of grace, but is it really enough? Because by the end of Genesis four to five, it really does leave us yearning for more. And it's not just that we're reading a bad story but we're kind of looking into a mirror as well. I, now, sure, I don't think any of us here have murdered anyone. If you have, you need to talk to someone about that, but I don't think we've murdered any, anyone. I don't think anyone has multiple wives, but don't we see the tendency in all of our own lives to ignore God, to live in a way which essentially gives him the middle finger, to let anger against others fester in our hearts, To let sin dominate and control us. We may not be exactly like Cain and Lamech in their actions, but haven't we all given in to sin's desires all too regularly? The truth is that given a choice between ruling over our sin and doing well versus letting sin dominate and control us, Our general tendency is actually towards sin. It's towards doing things our own way rather than God's way. There may be two paths put before us, the path of Cain or or the path of Seth. But in our own power and our own effort, we naturally and with very little effort walk down the path of Cain. As we read through this story, we, we know that help is needed more than just moments of grace peppered here and there this story cries out for big help we need big help as well and not in the form of some motivational speech to get us going we don't need a coach otherwise God would have sent us a coach we don't need a cheerleader right otherwise God would have sent us one we don't need a mentor right? God would have sent us a mentor if that was the case what we need Is we need someone to stand in for us. Someone who doesn't just help us from the sidelines, but substitutes himself in our place to do what we cannot do. To rule over our sin. To always do what is right in God's eyes. To walk with God perfectly. And we have that in Jesus Christ. And more. See... Not only have we a substitute who obeyed God who ruled over sin and did what was good in God's eyes We also have someone who shed blood This is what Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse 11. I am the good shepherd The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep see it there unlike Cain our big brother Jesus shed his own blood to keep and guard us. And by shedding his blood, he tasted death for us, and more than that, he was raised to life again. And that means that we might taste inevitable death as well, but in Christ, we will also live forever. Cain got mercy, but if he was clearly undeserving, then compare that to what we receive we who were once enemies of god receive way much more than what cain received we receive not only mercy but radically profound grace big grace big helping grace forgiveness of our sins reconciliation with god adoption as sons and daughters and eternal life with god our father forever what Jesus has done completely changes every note we've seen in Genesis 4 and 5. What Jesus has done gets us gets closer to that wonderful world that Louis Armstrong sings about. A world ruled by grace and not by sin. First, it, it changes the way that we relate to each other. Right? In Genesis 4, right, we've got a brother who murders his brother. We have fratricide the gospel now compels us to fraternal love, brotherly love. A love which is stronger and deeper than the one Louis Armstrong sings about in his song. In his song he sings, I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. But Jesus says brotherly love goes deeper. John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Jesus says that our love is to be modeled on his love. That is a deeper and more profound love than just simply how do you do. A love in which he laid down his life to serve others. Let me just simply ask, how does this reflect in our own lives? How often do we think about what will best serve others versus how often we think about what best serves us? The Apostle John takes takes this point and he makes the comparison to Cain. So in 1 John chapter 3, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. Who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. The gospel message we heard from the beginning means that we are not to be like Cain. He he murdered because he belonged to the evil one. We have been rescued from sin, Satan and death. And we now belong to the righteous one. We belong to Jesus. And if we belong to Jesus, then we are compelled to love one another. As Jesus has loved us. Cain took the life of his brother we lay down our lives for our brothers and for each other john goes on to explain what that love looks like specifically in his letter he talks about meeting each other's physical needs caring for those who have little and then the new testament broadly gives us multiple examples of loving one another by our words of encouragement our prayers for each other through acts of service to care for each other's needs, to caring for each other's spiritual walk as we share and ask how each other are going. Right, There are multiple ways that we can express our love for each other. And so, how are we going with that? Do we consider others first? Or do we put ourselves first? Are we like Cain? Or are we following our other big brother, Jesus? There are two paths put before us in, in Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit. We are no longer slaves to our sinful nature. You get to choose love. And when we choose love, we are choosing to embrace eternal life. The bad news of Genesis 4-5 to is that death reigns. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus we will live forevermore. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on, the, on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 4-5 to Death is the news. Sin is the victor, but praise be to God that Genesis 4-5 is swallowed up, that sin is no longer the victor. The certainty of death is not the final word. We embrace eternal life by trusting Jesus and loving each other. In Christ we will finally see that wonderful world that Louis Armstrong sang about, and it will last forever. Let me pray. Our oh, Heavenly Father, we are your children. Our elder brother is not Cain, our elder brother is Jesus. He gave his life for us so that we might give our lives to each other. So help us to do that. In Cain, we see a terrible, terrible person. Who puts himself first in Genesis 4 and 5 we see death reigning and sin reigning help us father to feel the weight of that in our own lives and to rejoice once again that the gospel has freed us from all of that we are no longer slaves to our Cain like nature we can follow in the footsteps of your son we can live on this path this alternative path of loving Jesus and serving each other, so help us to do that. Help us to live in ways that everyone is clear that we are your the disciples of your Son, because we love one another. Help us to do this. For we pray this for your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name. Amen.